Thanks for listening to audio from North Monroe. To learn more about who we are, visit northmonroe.com or download the North Monroe app in the App Store or on Google Play. Now, here's this week's message. They say that money can't buy happiness. Of course it can. I read a a research report recently. Uh, The title of it was, Can Money Buy Happiness? Scientists gave $10,000 out to find out. They gave $10,000 to uh, all these people, and then after they gave them the $10,000, they said, are you happier? And every one of the people in the survey said, yes. <laughs> here's, their, here's their conclusion. By comparing cash recipients with a control group that did not receive money, this pre- <laughs> can you imagine you're the group that didn't receive money? <laughs> this pre-registered experiment provides casual evidence that cash transfers substantially increases happiness across a diverse global sample. The authors wrote in the study published in the journal PNAS, which is a prestigious research journal. And I read that and I thought, who are these study guys and why don't they just ask somebody with sense? If you were to ask me, if I gave you $10,000, would you be happier? I don't need to study it anymore. In fact, you give me the $10,000 and I'll tell you the conclusion. If I had the money right now and I could give everybody in this room $10,000, this would be the most awesome worship service you ever went to, right? Part of their study was, as they studied it from lower socioeconomic all the way up, they discovered that the people with the lowest socioeconomics had more happiness than the people who were millionaires when they got the 10,000. I'm like, I could have told you that too. You guys can stop studying now. The truth is money does buy happiness for a while. And maybe that's the problem with money. I mean, we get a raise... Uh, we get a bonus, maybe some inheritance, maybe you win the lottery. And there's no question at all, for a while, you're going to be happier. It takes the pressure off. You can get some things you've been needing to get. You can do some things you've been wanting to do. You can have some experiences you were wishing you could have. No question at all that it's going to make you happier for a while. But here's the problem with money. Money buys some temporary relief, but it won't solve the bigger problems. And so I would say this, if you try to use money to solve the bigger issues, then I promise you're going to have money problems. The problem with money is because it's so temporary, it creates money problems. And that's the problem with it. You can't buy your way out of loneliness. You can't shop your way out of despair. Uh, You can't purchase forgiveness. You can't somehow put on credit Uh, the need to deal with your shame and guilt. You can't buy purpose, and you certainly can't buy God. He's not for sale. And so those bigger issues of our life that hover over us cannot be resolved with money, and yet because money does give us this temporary sense of satisfaction, we're all often blinded into the idea that if we just had more money, we could solve all of the even bigger problems. And that's the problem with money. And Solomon talks about it in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. So let's go there. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. He said, he who loves money. Now remember, this is a guy whose net worth was $2 trillion. And he says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money. 
Who doesn't already know that? I mean, you got a raise and you thought, you know, they did a study one time and they said, how much more money do you need to make a year in order to be financially stable and happy? And everybody on the survey, from those who made a lot to those who made a little, all indicated that if they made about 35000 more a year, they would be financially stable and happy. That was true across the board. And Solomon said... He who loves money will not be satisfied with money. That's because when we get a little, we just find something else to spend it on, right? Nor he who loves abundance with its income. And now notice he uses the word again. This too is vanity. And there it is, that word vanity. It's the overarching theme of the book of Ecclesiastes. Solomon is trying to construct purpose and meaning from a life as he gives the context of it in the very beginning. Under the sun, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What advantage does man have in all of the labor which he does under the sun? In other words, with only a horizontal perspective, without the eternal perspective, how do we construct meaning and value? And one of the ways that we'll often think is, well, if I, if I just had more money. You know, we all know that we look at this world and you see people who are, you know, uh, grotesquely wealthy, and yet they seem to have all these other problems. And we think, well, if we were grotesquely wealthy, uh, we would work it a different way. And we wouldn't have, you know, it's kind of like, you know, we know that money's not the key to happiness, but we kind of think in the back of our head, if we had more money, we could have the keys made. Solomon said, it's vanity meaningless, emptiness. Money makes us happy temporarily, but it can't satisfy us in the long haul. And we see too many examples of miserably wealthy people for this not to be true, but still we aren't sure why. And so Solomon helps us with the why. And he talks about the problems with money. Let's start there. The problems with money. Now, this isn't money problems. Money problems are different. Money problems are the thing that I create by not being a good steward of the money I have, by spending what I shouldn't spend to get what I don't need, right? That's money problems. But Solomon is talking about the inherent problems with money. This is is the problem with money. And the first thing that he says is more money, more problems. Look at verse 11. When good things increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on? More money, more problems. We had this guy in in, uh, the town that I pastored before I came here. His name was Clay Pointer. And I wasn't there when this happened, but this is the story as it was told to me. Clay was like a notorious community prankster. He was the local justice of the peace. Big handlebar mustache, uh, the epitome of a Texas guy, you know, uh, Clay. And one day he got the idea, the uh, lottery had gotten up to like 60 million, some crazy number, and everybody's talking about the lottery. So the night that they announced the lottery numbers, Clay writes them down, and then he leaves us out. Well, they do it like over the 10 o'clock news, you know. And then he left the house, went down to the local Circle K, and said, these are the numbers I need on a lottery ticket. And the girl says, those are the winning numbers. And he goes, yeah, I know. Yeah, I I need a lottery ticket with this number. And she said, well, it won't work now. They've already called him out. He goes, I know, I know. Just give me the lottery ticket with that number. And it was a lottery ticket with the winning number with the winning date on it the night it was announced. 
The next morning, he goes down to the Bullpen Cafe. That's the local cafe, a small town. All the guys kind of gather around there. Morning coffee, talk about football, talk about whatever, get a biscuit, you know, that kind of play. And uh, everybody's talking about the lottery. Who won? Did you win? And Clay walks in a little bit late. He's got his lottery ticket in his front pocket. And they said, hey, Clay, you got your lottery ticket. Did you win? He goes, you know, I hadn't had time to even check. And he pulled it out and he threw it on the table. Said, I got to go to the bathroom. He goes into the bathroom and these guys start reading the numbers and they check the date, not the time. And all of a sudden there's this roar in the bullpen. Clay won, Clay won. Can you believe Clay won? Bang, 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 bang. They're banging on the door. Clay, you won the lottery, you won the lottery. Clay comes out and he goes, I did? They go, yeah, you're a millionaire. He said, give me that ticket, I gotta go. And he goes and jumps in his truck and leaves. (laughs) That's a a great prank. Until it wasn't. Because then Clay's phone started to blow up. Everybody knew Clay was now a multimillionaire, and he started having cousins call that he didn't even know he had. And people with a knee replacement that needed done and a hip replacement and just wrecked my car, sad sack story. The, the fire department called, said they needed a new fire truck, 500000 to get us put right. You know, Clay, now I know you got a lot of money. And Clay spent the rest of the day, the next day, and the better part of the week trying to tell everybody, I didn't win. It was a joke. Please don't call me anymore. And that's when it really got funny because then it was a joke on Clay, but... You know, he learned a powerful lesson. More money, more problems. That's what Solomon said. There's a fascinating thing here uh, in Isaiah 22 concerning King Eliakim. Verse 23, I will drive him like a pig in a firm place. This is God talking. And he will become a throne of glory to his father's house. So they will hang on him all the glory of his father's house offspring and issue, all the, and the, all the least of vessels from bowls to all the jars. So they're, they're hanging it all on him. All of the family, all the kin, all the glory, all the expectations, everything that goes with entitlement and privilege and responsibility, it's all hung there on King Eliakim. And this is the feeling of wealth. Everyone's depending on you And the peg starts to feel the strain until verse 25. In that day, Isaiah says, declares the Lord of hosts, the peg driven in a firm place will give way. It will even break off and fall. And the load hanging on it will be cut off for the Lord has spoken. And how many times do we see people who, for whatever reason, talent, whatever, have found themselves in this place of ultimate responsibility and authority, like a peg driven in the wall. And all of a sudden, the weight of that begins to bear down on them. And and after a while, they just kind of lose it. You know, and you wonder, what happened to Kanye? You know what I'm saying? And I think about my own life. I I don't have all that weight, but, you know... 
Materially living in 21st century America, we're pretty prosperous people. I was thinking about that the other day. I went into the garage and I looked at all this junk I've got that I have to maintain. A weed eater, you know, and you got to put gas treatment in it or your weed eater blows up or your lawnmower or your, you know, whatever you got. You got all these little engines and motors, everything that has to be maintained. I was putting together a swing set one time and it said that you have to go back once a week and adjust all the bolts on the swing set or you void the warranty. Have you ever read the warranty on a swing set? I'm like, did I just commit every Saturday for the rest of my life to a swing set so that my kids won't get eaten by it? I mean, there's a weight to possessions and there's a weight to responsibility. And eventually, more money means more problems. Look at what he says in verse 12. The sleep of the working man is pleasant. He goes to work. Complains about management, goes home, watches a football game, goes to bed, whether he eats a little or much. But look at this. But the stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. And I wish I knew a survey of all the guys who have a lot of responsibility over a lot of other people, what their sleep patterns are. More money, more problems. Then then the second problem is hoarding hurts. Look at verse 13. There's grievous evil which I have seen under the sun. Riches being hoarded by their owner to his hurt. Now look, there's nothing wrong with being a wise investor. We need to invest wisely. We aren't talking about investing here. We're talking about hoarding. You say, what's the difference? Well, investing is preparing. Proverbs 6, 6 says, go to the anno slugger. Observe her ways and be wise, which having no chief or officer or ruler, prepares her food in the summer and gathers her provision in the harvest. So we need to invest wisely. We need to prepare for for the future and we need to do what we can to uh, manage resources that are given so that we can always be uh, independent and personally responsible. Hoarding isn't preparing. Hoarding is obsessing. Hoarding is this obsessive need to have more and more and more. Investing is unselfish. Proverbs 13, 22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Hoarding is selfish. In hoarding, you don't possess the possession. The possession possesses you. You don't own it. It owns you. Investing helps. Hoarding hurts. He says, hoarded by their owner to his hurt. And Paul describes exactly how this happens over in 1 Timothy chapter 6. So go with me there. Put your finger on Ecclesiastes. Let's go to 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. He says, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Notice, it's not money itself. I saw this snarky comment on Instagram. It said, If money is the root of all evil, then why does the church keep asking for it? Nobody in the church or in the Bible ever said money was the root of all sorts of evil. It doesn't say that at all. Read it carefully. What's it say? The love of money. That's a totally different animal. Money is not evil in and of itself. Money's a necessity. You need money to pay the bills. You need money to keep the lights on. You need money to eat, to live life, because we don't live in an agrarian society where we can produce all of our own goods and services. We need money. It's part of the economic system. But it's the love of money. When that takes root, when that takes over, look, it leads to all kinds of problems. It says it's a root Uh, And, you know, it's not the root. It's not the only root. It's a root 
of all sorts of problems. And whatever your root is, that's what's going to show up in your branches, right? So if I've got this love of money, then the evil that comes along with it and all of the compromises I have to make in order to become obsessed with the acquisition of income uh, begins to take over. And it says that, that many have pierced themselves. And that word pierced is an interesting word. It means to be put on a spit, to skewer. And notice it's a self-inflicted wound. Somebody isn't piercing you, you're piercing yourself. When you become obsessed with money and fall in love with money, you become obsessed and you pierce yourself. It says, with many griefs. And that word means emotional pain, sharp stabbing. The old word there was pang. You know, New American Standard says many griefs. I think the King James Version translates it more accurately. Man, he has pierced himself with many pangs. That word pang we don't use anymore, but that word meant literally piercing emotional pain. And, and what's interesting to me was Paul wrote that statement to Timothy, but it's a perfect definition of Solomon's life. His love of wealth had led him from faith and skewered his soul. That's what it does. Money is seldom secure. When those riches were lost through a bad investment, and this is verse uh, 14, and he had fathered a son, then there was nothing to support him. We had this guy in uh, in Bridgeport named Ray, and uh, I met him at the nursing home. Ray lived in the nursing home. Uh, he he was one of the most winsome, gracious people I ever met. He he would wheel his wheelchair out to the foyer of the nursing home, and everybody that came in every day, Ray would intentionally greet and welcome. And then I heard the backstory. Ray earlier in his life was a very successful businessman which you couldn't tell by the circumstances at the end of his life. Um, he was a, a guy that supplied gasoline to various gas stations in Texas. They call that a jobber. And he had a fairly robust company, um, but his wife had died. He was growing older, so he entrusted all of his assets to his only son. And, and, and unbeknownst to Ray and to anybody else, his only son had a gambling problem. And he gambled away his daddy's fortune. And to make it worse, after he gambled away his daddy's fortune, he realized what he had done, and he took his own life. And Ray told me, he said, you know, the heartbreak of, of what he had done with my resources was nothing compared to the heartbreak of what he did to my son by taking my son. Um, and Ray would tell you, nothing's secure. Look at Kanye. He's lost, what, $2 billion since uh, his deal with Adidas went down. Mark Zuckerberg's lost $87.3 million, billion, I'm sorry, not million, billion. Kanye lost billion, too. $87.3 billion. You know, when I read that, I thought, well, I'm feeling better about myself. I mean, you know, as bad of an investor as I am, I always like to buy high, sell low. Um, as bad as a, of an investor as I am, I haven't lost $87 billion, so there, Mark Zuckerberg, right? Elon Musk is taking a bath on twi Twitter. He's losing $4 million a day right now. There's no sure thing. You can't trust money. Proverbs 23, 4 says, Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it's gone. For the wealthy certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies toward the, hev uh, flies toward the heavens. Again, this is crazy because these are Solomon's words. He knew better. 
But you know, you can't take it with you. That's the other thing. You can't take it with, even if you can manage to hold on to it in this life, you can't take it with you. Look at, he makes this insight in, in, in uh, verse 20. And as he came naked from his mother's womb, so will he return. No, I guess it's verse 15. So he will return as he came. He will take nothing from the fruit of his labor that he can carry in his hand. This is also a grievous evil. Exactly as a man is born, thus will he die. So that, so what advantage is it to him who toils for the wind? We come out into this world without a stitch of clothing and we go out the way we came in. And my little granddaughter was born uh, last week and she's doing great. Uh, but she came into this world without a stitch of clothing, without a thread to call her name, to call her own. And I realized when it's my turn to go out, I'm going to go out just like she came in, just like I came in. I've preached, I've preached, who knows, hundreds of funeral sermons. And I've yet to see a hearse pulling a U-Haul. You go, your stuff stays, right? You came into this world naked, you go out naked. Now they're going to put some clothes on you just for decency. But at the end of the day, even those clothes you're wearing no longer belong to you. Why? Because dead people possess nothing. That's why we have lawyers and wills and all of that other stuff, because they got to figure out what to do with all the stuff you acquired, because none of it's going with you, and none of it benefits you anymore. You know what they're going to do? They're going to sift through some of the stuff you have and grab a few things that were meaningful to them, and then they're hauling it all to Goodwill. You thought it was priceless. They're like, I wonder what they can do with that down at Rolling Hills, you know? That's what, that's what they do. Let's have a big yard sale. And man, Solomon, this sent him into another spiral. Every time he thought about death, the bottom dropped out. Look at verse 17. Throughout his life, he also eats in darkness with great vexation, sickness, and anger. Man. Those are the problems with money. Those are the problems you never hear anybody really talk about. But let's talk about solving the problem. There's two powerful words I want to leave you with this morning. Gratitude and giving. What's the solution? Well, first of all, be grateful. This is, this is basically a summation. Uh, verse 18. Here's what I have seen to be good and fitting. To eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he to toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his reward. I was listening to a song. I'm always a little bit late. This song came out by Sia called Opportunity. It was actually the showstopper in the remake of Annie in 2014. Great song, Opportunity. But I listened to the lyrics, and here's, here's how they went. Oh, I used to think what I wouldn't give for a moment like this, this moment, this gift. And now look at me, and this opportunity is standing right in front of me. But one thing I know, it's only part luck, and so I'm putting on my best show under the spotlight. I'm starting my life, big dreams becoming real tonight, so look at me and this opportunity. You're witnessing my moment, you see? And I love that. I mean, it's a great song. I love the song. But I also think it goes to the heart of the problem we have. Everybody's looking for this big moment, right? And that's how, that's how the theme and means. You know, it's interesting that Annie was now looking in the newer version. She was looking for that big moment on stage 
But the old Annie was just looking for a family. Isn't it interesting how things have changed from a, a life where we used to be taught to treasure the moments and not worry so much about the big moment? And what happens is when we spend our life looking for that one big moment, we miss all those other moments, all of those other valuable, countless, priceless moments that we could have experienced that we miss. And it's all the stuff money can't buy. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says, Furthermore, as, to er, uh, as for every man, now look at this, to whom God has given riches and wealth, which, by the way, is you. I mean, unless you're at the very bottom of the socioeconomic ladder in America today, you have riches and wealth. We are the richest, wealthiest nation that's ever existed in the history of mankind. Solomon had $2 trillion. You're like, well, I don't have that much. What could he spend it on? I mean, if you want to, you can pull out MasterCard probably, and if you've got enough credit left, you can buy a plane ticket to Hawaii, and you can go to Hawaii. Solomon couldn't go to Hawaii. He didn't even know where Hawaii was. I don't picture Solomon in a swimsuit. Do you? But look what he says, that God has given it. He's also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. This is the problem of Solomon. He's always considering the years of his life and never the gladness of his heart. It's really about gratitude. Notice it says, to whom God is given. Here's the problem. Loving money is never satisfied. Isn't that where we started? He who loves money will never be satisfied with money. Paul said the love of money is the root of all sorts of evil, right? And it creates in you what I call a needy soul. The more you get, the more you want. And so you have this needy soul. Gratitude is the answer to the needy soul. It chooses to celebrate what you have instead of always longing for what's missing. You're going to celebrate Thanksgiving this week, this Thursday, right? You're going to have family in. You know, we, you know what that goes back to, of course? It goes back to 1621. It was really October the first time they did it, not November. William Bradford and the Pilgrims. You know a couple of things about that. First of all, you might have read on the internet or somewhere, I, I get so sick of uh, revisionist historians who say, you know, the Thanksgiving didn't really start with the pilgrims, that it was something that Lincoln just decided to do in the 1800s and all this. Look, the reason they're that way is because Thanksgiving is inherently a spiritual moment where spiritual people did what was counter to the normal narrative. The normal narrative is that these, these uh, intolerant, uh, European settlers came in and they just obliterated the indigenous people in that area. And that was certainly true of Jamestown. But no, it wasn't true of Plymouth. These were spiritual people who had a deeply spiritual bond with the indigenous people that lived around them. They lived in harmony with them for at least two generations. And, and they had this peace among them where the Indians helped them, they helped the Indians. And it really was what it's presented to be. And it wasn't fabricated by Lincoln. Uh, Bradford wrote uh, 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 a, a book about it, uh, The Plymouth Colony, uh, The Plymouth Plantation, uh, uh, in 1639, years after the first Thanksgiving, and he describes it in detail. 
And then Washington decreed it to be so. The Continental Congress decreed it to be so. Uh, uh, Adams did. Uh, Jefferson didn't because Jefferson was a deist and he didn't believe that God was actively involved in people's lives today. So he didn't want to give thanks to a God that he didn't believe in. Uh, Madison did and the rest of them down to it until Lincoln finally said, okay, let's settle the thing. So when you read that kind of idiotic, Reddit-driven, revisionist history, just know the real story. And here's a couple of things you might not have known. Turkey wasn't the main, wasn't the main event the, because the, the Indians brought a bunch of deer. So it's probably venison. You hunters will love that. And maybe you can kind of push for that at this year's Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, we probably made it turkey because not that many people used to kill deer, I guess. But uh, there were some fowl there. But what a lot of people don't know is there were twice as many Indians as there were pilgrims. There were over 100 Indians, and there were only 53 pilgrims. Why were there so few pilgrims? Because that's all that was left. When they landed at Plymouth Rock in 1620, December, during a mini ice age, they started winter unprepared. In that first winter, out of the 102 people that walked off the Mayflower, the next year only 53 were still alive. 53, work that out. And the women were the hardest hit. There were 19 women on the Mayflower, and by the first Thanksgiving, there were only five. Five women still alive. And yet, and yet, they gave thanks. And they weren't giving thanks for their prosperity. They were giving thanks for God's provision. And that changes everything. That's why their lives were so different, because it solved the problem of a needy soul. They said, God, I don't need one more thing to be joyful. You're, you're all I need. And the second thing is to be a giver. Gratefulness is the answer to the needy soul. Giving is the answer to the greedy soul. You know, I mentioned uh, 1 Timothy 6.10, the love of money. I didn't have time to read the rest of it. Let's go back up there. 1 Timothy 6, skip down to 17. Command those who are rich in this world's good not to be haughty or to set their hope on riches, which are uncertain. Solomon said that. But on God, who richly provides us with all things for our enjoyment, there's that gratitude, that gratitude that meets the, the needs of the needy soul. Tell them to be, here's what we're to do, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, to be generous givers, sharing with others. And this is the secret of the love of money. When you cultivate a giver's heart, you do battle with a greedy soul. It's in us to hoard I mean, we saw that during COVID. We bought all the toilet paper and paper towels. It was so weird. Of all the things we're going to need, ooh, let's get some toilet paper and paper towels. And we couldn't get enough. We didn't care if anybody else had any. We're going to have ours. That's hoarding. And God says the answer to hoarding is giving to cultivate generosity. And look at what happens, verse 19. In this way, they will save up treasure for themselves. And what a play on words. By giving, you store up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation. Isn't that funny? We use money as a means of security. But he says, you want real security? Give, be a giver 
and you'll find treasure for yourselves and a firm foundation. And so lay hold, look at this, of what is truly life. Not a pretense kind of life, not a greed-driven life, not a need-driven life, but true life. You see, the problem with money is it'll make you happy for a while. If I gave you $10,000 right now, you'd walk out happy. But you can't buy the thing you need the most. It's not going to buy a relationship with Jesus. He's not for sale. That's the thing you need the most. You can't purchase purpose. You You can't buy significance. All of the stuff that we need the most come to us from a place that has nothing to do with money. Will money make you happy? Yeah, for a little while, but then you're always going to need more. But the thing you need the most, you can't buy. And so if we know that to be true as his followers, then when are we going to begin to live up to that creed? When are we going to say, God, instead of always looking for my moment, I'm going to celebrate the moments and be grateful, and I'm going to recognize them as your gift and I'm going to be thankful. There's something you can do this Thursday that's really genuine. Why don't you let Thanksgiving be about Thanksgiving? And then to, to, to battle the greed of our heart and say, God, as long as I let greed reign, enough is never enough. But I'm going to let myself be a generous giver, however that fleshes out. And I'm going to help people, and I'm going to be rich in good deeds. What a great commitment that would be, wouldn't it? to help us to be more like Jesus. I want to make that, so let's make that together right now. That's our commitment before Him. Father, I commit myself to be grateful and to celebrate moments instead of always looking for the moment. And Father, I'm going to commit myself to be generous. And I just pray that You would deal with my greed. Father, we thank you that Jesus was a giver. But he didn't give a bunch of cash. He gave himself. The one that was without sin became sin on our behalf. And all the sins we'd ever do and all the sins we ever did were nailed to Jesus on the cross. And because of that, his sacrifice atones for my, for my, uh, my guilt. And I thank you that he gave us that. And I pray, Heavenly Father, for those that are here right now that need to receive your gift to be transformed into the image of your Son. Let it be in this moment. In Christ's name, amen. Our hope is that this message has encouraged you to seek Christ in your own life and make Him known wherever you are. If you enjoyed the podcast, please subscribe on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and share it with a friend. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week.